Well, let's turn to Revelation chapter 2 this morning. Revelation chapter 2, and we'll begin reading with verse 12. Revelation 2, 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days when Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. This is the word of God. I wonder what comes to your mind, what you think of when you hear the word compromise. Do you think of something positive or something negative? I'm tempted to take a poll, but I won't. A compromise can be positive, right? If you run a business, you've got to make agreements with people in your own company or outside. Sometimes you have to make compromises to do what's best for everybody uh, involved in the process or in the work. In marriage, any of you found out that compromise can be a very positive thing in marriage? No, okay, just me, thanks. Appreciate that. You can't always have your way, right? Or can you? I don't know. Y'all might know something I don't know. Sometimes you got to give on your side, and sometimes the other side has to give on their side, right? Compromise can be a very good and a healthy thing when it comes to relationships, to, to business, to uh, even in marriage and in our own homes. But compromise can also be a negative thing, can't it? Compromise can be wrong. There are some things, wouldn't you agree, that should never, ever be compromised, Let's just start with the exclusivity of Christ. What did Jesus say in John 14, 6? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, it doesn't get much more discriminatory than that. It doesn't become more exclusive than that because there is absolutely no wiggle room in that statement. You can say you like Jesus, that he was a good teacher, that he was a prophet or whatever you like, but you can't get around the fact that he himself said and believed and claimed that he was the only way to God. And we believe that to be true. We can't compromise on that truth. You can't compromise on the exclusivity of Christ and be a Christian. You can't compromise on the truthfulness of God's word, can you? We read this week, our, our discipleship group started the book of Genesis, and we talked about it just this morning in chapter 3. When the serpent came to Eve, God had said, Do not eat of the 
fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. And the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Satan, uh, Satan in the form of a serpent comes along. And what does he say? Did God really say? He didn't come out and deny God's word right off the bat. He didn't call God a liar on the front end. He just came along and cast a little doubt. Hath God said, you shall not eat of the tree? So we can't compromise on the truthfulness of God's word. We can't compromise our guard against sin. In the same book, in Genesis 4, when Cain had brought his sacrifice and it wasn't acceptable, God came to him and he said, hey, you can do well here. You're at a fork in the road. But I want you to know that sin is crouching at your door and desires to have you. And in the church and in the life of every Christian, we cannot compromise in our guard against sin. Let me tell you a story. You'll find this story in the book of Numbers, uh, chapters 22 through 25, and then are mentioned in chapters 30, chapter 31, about Balaam. Balaam was essentially a, a prophet for hire, a sorcerer of sorts, who people believed that whoever he blessed would be blessed and whoever he cursed would be cursed. Well, the people of Israel, in the middle of their wanderings, have come up and set up camp on the border of Moab. And the king of Moab, he's nervous. Why? Because he's heard of how God has blessed this people and how he's destroyed their enemies. And if Israel has come and set up a camp on his border, he's afraid he's next. So when he's thinking of what to do, he thinks of Balaam. He sends messengers to get Balaam to come and he pays him to put a curse on Israel. That was the plan. Well, Balaam's going along with the men. He's headed to, 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 make, to place this curse on Israel. And on the way, he's riding his donkey. And what happens? God lets the donkey see an angel in the road with a sword. Balaam can't see it, but the donkey can. And he runs off in the field. Balaam gets his stick. He beats his donkey. The donkey gets back on the road. A little further down, he's crossing a bridge. There's a wall on each side. He sees the angel again. The donkey rams and crushes uh, Balaam's leg against the wall. Balaam, being a good godly Christian man, beats his donkey with a stick again. He heads on down the road a little further. The, the donkey sees the angel with the sword drawn. He crouches down and won't go any further. Balaam beats him with a stick. And then what does God do? The scriptures tell us that God opens the mouth of the donkey and the donkey says, why are you beating me? And Balaam answered him. Now, I don't know which is more surprising, the fact that the donkey spoke or that Balaam talked back. Balaam said, you're lucky I just got a stick. If I had a sword, I'd kill you. But then God opened Balaam's eyes and saw the angel there with his sword drawn as a threat. You do not curse my people. So Balaam went on and three times he tried to curse the people of Israel, but he could, instead he could do nothing but bless them. And so when he was not able to curse them, he tries another tactic. He can't curse the people of God directly, so he has the Midianite women go in and seduce the men of Israel. And they give themselves over to sexual immorality. They compromise on their moral guard. They committed sexual immorality, and that opened the door to idolatry. And God sent a plague on his people to correct that sin. In Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17, as we've read, we see a church that we could call a compromising church. This is the church at Pergamos or Pergamum. And why do we call Pergamum 
a compromising church? What are the marks, if you will, of a compromising church? Two things, really. One, we'll look at these in more detail. One, they credibly claim Christ's name. They claim the name of Christ, and it's a credible claim. They seem to stand for the truth. They believe in him. They know all the right things and believe all the right things. But the second mark would be that they compromise when sin creeps in. You see, we saw Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus, and he commended them for all the things they had done well. He knew their works, their labor, how they had been working for him tirelessly, but they had neglected something good, and that was they had left their first love. But in the case of Pergamum here, he acknowledges and commends them for their faithfulness in one area, but instead of pointing out something they've neglected and leaving their first love, they are a compromising church in that they have allowed in sin. It's not that they're neglecting something good, it's that they're actively involved in something that is wrong while they're also trying to do good. So they credibly claim Christ's name and they compromise when sin creeps in. Look at each of those. The first one, they credibly claim Christ's name. And notice how Jesus introduces himself in verse 12. He says, To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. Now we've seen in all of these letters so far that the way Jesus introduces himself is a reference back to his revelation of himself in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 16, he says he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Everything that Jesus says about, everything that Jesus says to the church is rooted in his revelation of himself. And we know what this sword is for. Revelation 19, verse 15 tells us that out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So this sword that proceeds out of Christ's mouth, that's a kind of a weird picture anyway. It's, in some ways, it's terrifying that Christ stands with his eyes of fire and his feet like brass and his blazing white face and a sword piercing out of his mouth. That sword's purpose is to judge the nations, to judge those who have rebelled against God, to strike down his enemy. Now, when he starts a letter like that, well, it could go a couple of ways. I mean, let's just be frank. If somebody started a conversation with you and they said, hey, I've got a gun. What's your first thought? It's probably a threat. Now, for those whom Christ is against, the sword is fearful. If you are living in sin, if you do not stand with Christ, his sword is something to be feared. It's a terror to you because he will judge you along with the nations. But for those who stand with him, those whom he defends, the sword is a comfort. And so in certainly every congregation, just like Pergamos, there were some for whom the sword would have been a comfort, knowing that Christ stands for your defense. But to others, it would have been a terror, knowing that you stand under his judgment. He, he commends the church here in verse 13. He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
You hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, what does he mean? He says at the first part of the verse, where Satan's throne is, and then he says at the end, where Satan dwells. He, he could mean this, that, that Pergamum was basically, uh, as one writer says, a Gentile base for false religions. I mean, about any major false religion of that day was uh, found its headquarters in Pergamum. You see, they had this enormous throne-shaped altar to Zeus in the city. That may be what he's referring to, where he speaks of Satan's throne. Zeus was a god they worship. Also, y'all help me with this name. You know what I'm talking about. Asclepios. Here, if you've got... Medicare, you've heard, you know what that is. It's the, the, the symbol on the, the medical stuff, the snakes, right? Asclepios was prominent. He's the god of healing. They had these healers, these doctors they believed in that area, and part of their medicine was to go lie down in a temple of Asclepios at night, and there were snakes in the temple, and hey, you know what? You're healed, right? If one of the snakes comes and touches your skin or crawls over your body while you're sleeping, that would contribute to your healing. I'd be healed right away. I'd say, no, I'm good. I'm going home. I'm not going in this place. And Pergamum essentially was the capital of Caesar worship. We talked about that last week, how that at least once a year you had to come and offer incense to Caesar. No matter what other religion you practice, no matter what other god you claim to worship, at least one day a year you had to come and offer incense to Caesar and make the proclamation, Caesar is Lord. Now Christians couldn't worship at the altar of Zeus. Christians didn't believe in Asclepios. They couldn't call Caesar Lord. They were living in the heart of persecution to the point that Antipas here, who may have very well been the pastor in Pergamum, was killed. You think it's hard to live as a Christian in the United States of America. It's not. Even the hardest cities where Christians are most oppressed, it's nothing compared to what the Christians faced in Pergamum. But even in all this, the church at Pergamos did not deny Christ. He says, you hold fast to my name. You claim the name of Christ. You won't offer incense to Caesar. You won't worship at the altar of Zeus. You won't lie down in the temple of Asclepius. But you hold fast to the name of Christ, claiming no one else as Lord. He says, you did not deny my faith, literally the faith of me, the, your faith in Christ, the word of God. They were a church that even in the heat, in the midst of persecution, they were faithful to say Jesus is Lord and we believe his word. We hold fast to the faith. That's a good commendation. I hope that should we ever be oppressed to any significant degree, whether we are or not, that we would stand firm and be faithful that Christ would say, you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith. Even when it's hard, you were faithful. But you see... Uh, a compromising church may credibly claim Christ's name, but the problem is they also compromise when sin creeps in. 
His commendation is verse 13, but verse 14 and 15 is his condemnation. He says, I have a few things against you. Man, Ephesus, he says, I have something against you, and that's bad enough, but he comes to Pergamum and he says, I have a few things against you. Because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. You see, what was happening in Pergamum with the Nicolaitans, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, was like what happened to Israel with Balaam. See, Israel was living under God's blessing. They were his people. He sheltered them. He protected them. You could say he, he held his sword in their defense. But they let sin creep in. They compromised when it came to their morality. And here the Nicolaitans in the church of Pergamum have come along and they're promoting the same kinds of sin. The main things going on here are sexual immorality and idolatry. Despite their faithfulness to Christ's name, despite their refusal to deny the faith, even in the face of persecution and probable death, they compromised in the areas of sexual immorality and idolatry. Sexual immorality isn't so hard to find today, even if we assume or pretend that no one in the church is sitting that way. Let's just be clear, God's design for human sexuality is one man and one woman engaged in the covenant of marriage and all its benefits for a lifetime. Amen? Just want to make sure we're on the same page. For the unmarried, there is no sexual activity, none, alone or with another person that is acceptable for you to engage in. God has reserved those pleasures, those gifts for the context of marriage and his design and purpose for you in that is good. For the married, you have entered into a covenant with your spouse and with God and any sexual activity outside the bounds of that covenant is sin. And again, just to be clear, for both the unmarried and the married, this includes the activity with your eyes and your mind. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you've heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if a man looks at a woman to lust after her, he has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And that goes both ways, men to women, women to men. So no matter how loudly you profess Christ, do not compromise in the area of sexual morality. And if we come to church and we sit down and look around and pretend like it's not happening, we're deceiving ourselves. It happens in churches all the time. And even if it's not in the ways you can see it, pornography is so invasive and it's so prevalent in the church that we've got to talk about it so we can deal with it. Don't compromise in the area of sexual immorality. Now, idolatry, the other thing here, looks different in 21st century America, but it abounds nonetheless. 
I highly doubt any of you have gone out this week, cut down a tree, carved a face into the wood, and got down on your knees and worshipped it. If you have, come see me. we got some stuff to talk about. For one, it's cold. You need that firewood. Don't waste it on a... We'll, we'll talk about that later. Idolatry comes in so many forms. It can come in the form of church facilities or worship preferences, having our way when we gather with the congregation. Idolatry can come in the form of politics, holding allegiance to a political party more tightly than we do to the name of Christ. Assuming that everyone who disagrees with us is out of the will of God, living in sin. Idolatry can come in pleasures, hobbies, distractions. Oh, if, we've ever, if there's ever been an age where distractions abound, it's now. This thing right here and all the stuff it can do can very easily become idolatry. The name of Christ and the word of God may be your profession, but be careful not to compromise by falling into the subtle traps of idolatry. Jesus gives a simple command to this church, this compromising church in verse 16. It's a one word command. Repent. Repent. Some people look at the word repent and they take the the literal definition of it to change one's mind. And they don't call for any action. But let me just be clear. Any change of mind that doesn't result in a change of action doesn't really mean you changed your mind. A call to repentance is to change your mind, yes, and how you think about something, to confess your sin to God, to acknowledge that what you've been doing is wrong, and it results in a change of action. You turn away from your sin, and you turn to Christ. When he says repent, he says, yes, acknowledge that it's wrong. Yes, ask God to forgive you. Yes, confess it to him, but stop it. Whatever sin you're caught in, whatever measure of sexual immorality you're caught up in, whatever measure of idolatry you're involved in, stop it. Turn away and run to Christ for mercy. Repent. The next two words, or else. Verse 16, he says, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Watch the pronouns in that verse. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. There's a them that exists among the you. Did you catch that? If you don't repent, I'm going to come to you, the church, And with the sword of my mouth, I will fight against them. Who's the them? The those who live in the context of the church who are actively involved in sin. See, Jesus told the parable about the wheat and the tares. There's a field of wheat. An enemy comes in by night, sows the tares. They realize what's happened. Once it's too late, they say, hey, should we gather up the tares? And he says, no, don't do that unless you harm the wheat too. But wait until the harvest. 
We'll gather them all up at once, separate the tares from the wheat, throw the tares into the fire. Friend, in the context of the local church, there are many who love the Lord, who are, who are faithful believers, who have been born again and walking with Jesus. But inevitably, there are people who are mixed in the church who are living in sin and who will be judged by God when he comes again with the sword of his mouth. Oh, friend, do not be one who is caught in the judgment, but follow the command that Jesus gives to repent. Repent. And just like his letters to the previous churches, we've looked at Jesus gives a promise to those who overcome, to those who are faithful, to those who love him and walk with him. Three things here. He says in verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. You know what the manna was? The manna was the food that God gave Israel in the wilderness to sustain them. That bread from heaven, they called it. But then in John 6, Jesus comes along and he says, I am the true bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. This hidden manna that Christ gives us to eat is Christ himself sustaining us. When you walk with him in fellowship and you live in that loving relationship with him, he will sustain you. When you're persecuted, he will sustain you. When you're tempted to sin, he will sustain you. He says, I will give him a white stone. There are several things that, that white stone could represent. Some think it could refer to a vote uh, in court to acquit someone. They'd put stones in, a, in an urn, and if you voted to acquit someone of a crime, you'd put a white stone in. And so that white stone was a stone of acquittal, that you got to go away free, not guilty. And surely that is what Christ has done for us, right, in forgiving us. He has, he has taken our sin upon himself and his death on the cross. And now through, forget, through faith in him, we've been forgiven. We have new life. We are guiltless in God's sight. But it's also the white stone was a, a trophy that was given to a victorious athlete. And all the athletes who had been victorious would take their white stone and it was their access, it was their ticket in to all the celebrations that followed, the feasts of the victors. Friends, we who overcome, we who have been made one with Christ, we who will remain faithful have been given, as he says, a white stone. That is, we will come out victorious and be given access to the, the day of celebration, that great feast when Christ comes again. And then he says, and on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And I've already been asked this morning what it is. And I can just point to the verse. No one knows. <laughs> it's exactly what he says. This white stone that Christ gives to those who overcome will, will have written on it a name which no one knows except the one who receives it. People call me different things. Most of you just call me Jacob. Some of you call me Pastor Jacob. I've got this one cousin that for some reason calls me Jake. Nobody else does that. Uh, my wife might call for me, and depending on how things have gone that day, it would likely come out, hey, honey, right? That comes out sometimes. 
When my kids need something, it's daddy, right? You have, you have the different names that depending on the relationship. But because of your relationship with Christ, there is a name that he will give to you that no one will know except you and him alone. That close, intimate fellowship, that relationship for all eternity. You see, we see this in how we generally do marriages. A lot of people are getting away from this, but I think it's a good thing. That when a, a, a man and a woman get married, that the wife takes the last name of the husband. And to some degree, she gives up a part of her, of her identity to partake in his. And that's what happens when we become Christians, right? Our identity is no longer in what we were, what we did, our sexual immorality or our, or our idolatry. But our identity is in Christ who saved us. We become one with him. This is what happens when we're born again. When we hear that message that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, that he offers us forgiveness. When he forgives us and gives us new life, he unites us with himself. And he gives us a new name that no one will know but us and him alone. Sin, listen, sin no longer defines us. Your past does not define you. Our identity is in Christ and in Christ alone. So repent. Turn away from those things that don't define you. Turn away from those things that would love to have a hold on your life, have control over you. Don't be a compromising Christian. Don't be a compromising church. Deal with your sin and rest in your identity in Christ, in how he has loved you and given himself for you and has made you his own. Bow your heads for a moment. Take a minute now and as the scriptures say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. What is it that the Spirit has said to you this morning? What has he brought to your mind, to your attention, that's causing problems in your relationship with God? Is it a sin of sexual immorality? Repent. Is there some level of idolatry where something has taken the place of God? Repent. Jesus loves you. He died for you. And he wants a loving relationship with you. He offers it freely. Our Father, we praise you for your word. And while some words are hard to hear, we know that they are for our good. We know that it is because you desire to bless our lives and to bless our church. But sin gets in the way of that. 
So I pray that you would grant us repentance and draw us in to that love relationship with you, our God. In Jesus' name.